Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we confess that while we stand here and say these words, so much of this week, the battle was right there. Will I trust you? It doesn't feel like you're holding me. I don't think I can maintain. I'm about ready to lose it, God. And yet you've told us over and over and over in your word that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. But so many times this week we wrestled with that truth. And we confess that we often fell on the wrong side of that. We, we didn't believe the God that you are. We believed our own lies. And so, Father, it's great for us to come at a time like this to know that our salvation, the strength of our salvation, the rightness of our salvation, doesn't fall on our shoulders. You're not looking to our performance to see if you would bless us, to see if today we would earn your salvation. It is all placed on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, and he went to the cross he lived the perfect life. He died the sacrificial death. He rose victoriously, and he sits at the right hand, making intercession so that regardless of how we feel, regardless of what it looks like, regardless of what darkness we're facing, we are yours, and you are ours. And we rejoice at this. And Father, sometimes in our own hearts, we just have to say those words. We're trying to live it by faith. And I pray, Father, that today that the Word of God would begin to go deeper and deeper into our own souls as we meditate upon your sovereignty, your providence, you working in the affairs of humanity. And you've done this since you created us. And you will do this throughout all eternity. And some in this room will end up in eternity with you because of the work of Christ. However, some will not end up that place. And they will walk away in everlasting fire and punishment. And so, Father, we come today hearing the gospel again that we are forgiven. We stand forgiven at the cross. And for that one that may be in here today not believing it, would you grant them faith? May they hear the word of God and may they come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ today. Would you grant them that faith? Would you grant them repentance that they may turn from their own self-righteousness and believe in your finished work for us? My Father, we are excited to know that the gospel is going out around the world. Some of us heard messages this week that told us we were with people that want to go and want to share the gospel. And Father, I'm thinking of Pastor Corey MacArthur, our Lord, who's in the Middle East, shepherding God's people there in the midst of great turmoil. And yet their confidence is in the everlasting Savior, the Prince of Peace. And I pray, Father, that they would be able to speak well the gospel. Lord, I think of even right here in Columbus, 
Lord, at Berean Bible Church in Dublin, where Pastor Matt Vanderwalker will be preaching. Father, would you embolden him with the gospel? May you cause people there to hear the gospel and come to faith in Christ. May you encourage those people there to go on believing the promises of God that have been from everlasting to everlasting. Cause our hearts to rejoice this morning. Please meet with us. Let the word of God dwell in us richly this morning. And may our hearts turn to you. And out of love and gratitude, may we live for you this week out of that beautiful gift of righteousness. And may we ever praise you, for you alone deserve our praise and worship. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I should have mentioned there are a number of people that are missing today just simply because their sickness. It's crazy sickness that's going around. Some of you have gotten it. Uh, and you told me a little bit about it, and I'm going like, ugh, I don't want to hear about it. Oh, my word. It's, it's nasty. Um, Cindy got it a couple weeks ago, and I'm just like, nah, get thee behind me. I don't know. All right, Daniel. The book of Daniel, it's in the First Testament. All right, so if you want to look at it, um, I think we give page numbers 737. If you use the, the Pew Bible, 737. That will take you to the book of Daniel, and we'll begin in this. Uh, this, as you know, you've, you've, you've been here before. You know how we've been able to go through books. Uh, I, I was hoping that we would be able to spend some time today reading through the entire book, but alas, it's a lot. So I won't do that because we've got to say a lot. And this is an introductory day, an introductory day. so you kind of know how we do this. We go and figure out why is this here and why are we listening to this man and why this particular book? So I hope you will uh, come and listen, listen well. I hope it's not too warm in here that it will put you to sleep. If it is, feel free to stand up, all right, and just kind of stretch. It, it'd be weird, probably you feel a little weird, but, but I, I want you to be awake for this because Daniel exhibits resilient faith because of God's faithful, steadfast love. And I don't want us to miss one inch of this this morning. Uh, so let's, let's read. I, I'm going to give an introduction, then we, then we will read. Uh, so stay with me at first, and then we'll get to the text, all right? It's a little unusual, I know. But we enter back into the First Testament. It has really become my, my favorite place to go. I, I love the First Testament. You say, well, it's the Old Testament. I go, I know, but I was taught by a, a godly a professor that it's the First Testament and the Second Testament, so just, just go with me with it, okay? Just, um, but this book, Daniel. And for those of you that are visiting, you've kind of come here and you go like, let me just tell you what our goal here is that our goal is to eventually preach the entire Bible. Um, and since coming here in the middle of 2010, I counted up, and to my knowledge, to my count, which could be wrong, I'm not really good with numbers, we have gone through 14 different books of the Bible. And we're excited, I'm excited to say that. But we do so in what is known as this expositional style of preaching. And it simply means that we are seeking to pull out of Scripture what God says. And so as I say that word expositional, you've probably heard the word position. 
And there's a truth or a position that is placed here by God. And the idea of X means to bring out. So we're trying to pull out what God says. And so what we normally do is we do in a very scientific way. We choose books of the Old Testament and books from the New Testament. And we preach out of that. And we, sometimes we go back and forth. But one year, we spent the entire year in the First Testament. So it's not too scientific, is it, really? Um, but we enjoy every word. And it is our desire that every word of God that will give life. And it gives faith. And it works itself in us. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And he that comes to God must believe that he is. And faith comes only by hearing God's word. So we take our time and we look at what the scriptures say that we're not listening to. And then we take a look at what the culture is saying that we are listening to. And it's our desire then to go back to hear what God says and give ourselves and our undivided attention to God's voice. We feel like it's very important for God's people to hear God's voice. So every time the Word of God is read, you're hearing God's voice. So today we get to go to the book of Daniel. And before we jump in with both feet into that book, I'd like to pull over just a little bit and talk exactly about what a prophet of God is. Daniel is known as a major prophet and so I want to talk a little bit about this and we introduced this idea um, to us when we were studying the book of Malachi if you remember I talked about Malachi being a minor prophet and the major prophets so I want to just take just a few minutes in our introduction and talk about what a prophet is and there's observations that I want to give to you about this just four briefly number one one fourth of the Bible is prophecy. One-fourth of the Bible. So we can't afford to ignore these guys. Can you imagine taking your Bible today and cutting it into four pieces and taking one and throwing it away and only studying the other three-fourths? I don't think we would want to do that. And remember with me there are twelve minor prophets, sometimes called the little twelve, and then there are the major prophets, of which Daniel is one, along with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And prophecy, then, is vital for us to consider. And yet it is daunting to begin to interpret and unravel. And we will see this as we walk through the book of Daniel. But that doesn't mean we set it aside. We want to hear God's word. Notice, secondly, prophets were put there by God. Prophets are very intentionally placed into our world. Moses made it very clear that God will raise up prophets for a particular purpose. And you can read about this in Deuteronomy 18, 15. Listen to this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is him you shall listen. Beautiful. God intends to speak to people through the prophets. If you remember with me, the pattern of Israel was later decided that they didn't want a prophet. They didn't want to hear from God in this way. They instead wanted a king. And it was a time of great angst. It was a time of great rebellion 
against God and a lot of confusion went on for years because they would not listen to the prophet that God sent and, and Samuel bemoaned that and, in, and, and God told Samuel, Samuel don't worry they're not rebelling against you, they're rebelling against me but the prophets often felt like the people just won't hear me and it really was they're not hearing God in fact, Daniel 18, verse 18, speaks of the final prophet, Jesus Christ himself, who would come. And so God did do as he promised, and he brought prophets. And even in our world today, I'm not a prophet, but I do work for a nonprofit organization. Some of you will get that in a minute. But that has nothing to do with my, my role as a pastor, though, is to speak forth God's word. And it is right for us to hear what God says. The third thing I want you to understand is that prophets had to have great integrity. Deuteronomy 18, Moses explains it further in verses 21 through 22. He says, if you say in your heart, how many may, how, how may we know that the, word, that the word of the Lord has not spoken? How can we know? And he says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, this is the word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. And my friend, we have a lot of that going on today, where the word of God is spoken presumptuously. You need not to be afraid of him if he, what he speaks, he speaks the truth. So God drew a clear line in the sand so that people would discern a prophet of God and one who was someone who was self-appointed. The prophet cannot be wrong. If a prophet was ever wrong, he disqualified himself of being a prophet. Integrity in word and in being. This implied that these men had to be holy men. These were men that were chosen by God, put in place by God, and they walked with God in a very close relationship, and so they were revered and feared even as men of God. And then fourthly, I want you to understand that prophets spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Daniel is speaking to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God inspired them. We, we learned about this in 2 Peter 1.20. Holy men of God, once again, those of these prophets, spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This means they had a formidable task. It was their duty to speak what they heard and what they saw in light of God's sovereignty, even though they may not have had privy to all that it meant for every generation. And today we get to look in the rear view mirror, as it were. And we get to look backwards. Many of them did not have that opportunity. And we realize as we look in the rear view mirror that really this book is not about Daniel. I will not be, and Chaz will not be preaching to you to be like Daniel. Now, in some sense, we should be like Daniel, dare to be like Daniel. But it's not really even about Daniel's resilient faith. It's about the steadfastness of God's love and devotion to them and to his word that was the foundation so that they lived in a way that demonstrated resilient faith. I would bet you that if we had Daniel here and say, Daniel, hey, you had resilient faith, he'd go like, oh my word, no. Walking into that fiery furnace, we were scared to death. 
Why? Because he's human being. He's just like you, just like me. And Daniel would say, no, it's not me. It's about God. And we get to understand this. It's about God. It's about God's word spoken. It's about God's word heard. It's about God's word submitted to. So you will need a good dose of humble submission to what we are about to hear this morning and the weeks ahead. Come prepared to listen and then die to yourself as we explore the greatness of God. I, I've chosen as a key verse one that I think will help you. It's the one that Jeff Peterson read this morning, but I want to put it up here in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21 through 22. Listen to the words and notice, if you would, as we've put it up there, notice what words are outlined or underlined, excuse me, underlined. And you'll get the glimpse of what Daniel is trying to say throughout his entire book. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Now listen carefully. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with Him. My friend, you ought to memorize this. This ought to be plastered to your forehead. This is beautiful because it sets in place what should be the foundation of our very souls as we look at 2024 in our world today. And notice Daniel has a third-person theology. Six times Daniel declares that we should all, what we would all understand and say, yes, we get it, we understand. Yet for many of us, we have substituted Daniel's he with the pronoun I. And that's not Daniel's theology. It's no wonder that we are prone to leave the God that we love. And here's where we learn what is this book is teaching us. And here's what I want you to see today and the weeks ahead. The faithful sovereignty of God is our source for resilient faith. The faithful sovereignty of God is our source for resilient faith. Now, let's read together the first chapter and we'll begin to grapple with all that God is saying. And I want us to read just verses 1 through 7. Alright? So, if you have your Bibles open, let's look at verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the household of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenes, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribes of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names 
Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. This is the reading of God's Word. But I want us to spend the time this morning, the time that's left, I want us to look in particular at verses 1 and 2. But before we even look at verses 1 and 2, I want you to look at the very top of the page. If your Bible is like mine, it says one word, one name. What name is it? Daniel. And we begin with understanding Daniel's point of writing by simply observing what his name means. We begin to understand everything else that you will read if you understand what his name means. The name Daniel means God is my judge or God rules me. So what that means is this. Every time he said his own name, it was a life reboot for him. Like he would be sitting there trying to go through life and something would come up, anxiety would come up, and all he would have to do is say, Daniel. And it reorients his thinking. God is judge. God rules me. Every time someone called out to him, it was a constant confrontation of his will as to who's in charge. Hey, Daniel! Yes, that's right. God's in charge. You're right. You're right. Oh, what? What? What did you need? And for Daniel, his life constantly resonated with the reality that truly all of life is really all about God. I wonder if we should call you Daniel. How many of you have Daniel in your name somewhere? Do you have anybody? I was trying to think of any, any Daniels. Do you? Like what? What is it? Your maiden name is Daniel. Same, same, same maiden names. Are you guys just... <laughs> of course. Is it McDaniel or is it just Daniel? Daniel. Awesome. So every time we... It would be great if we just start calling each other Daniel. Just to remind us, where do we get our life? Where do we get our sustenance? Where do we get life? God is our judge. God is our judge. And if you look carefully, there's a hint of Daniel's name in one word. In chapter 7, verse 10, in the ESV, it is the word judgment. Just, just look at it later, but you'll see this, the word judgment. In the NAS, if you have the NAS... It is the word court, C-O-U-R-T. And it says that the word, it says that the court sat. And this is his first vision where the councils of the entire world are gathered before God. And it says the court sat or the court was in judgment. And this court or judgment is the Hebrew word deny, D-I-N-A-I. And then if you, if you read in his name, there is in Hebrew, the, the, the letter Yod, which is Y, you'd get Dan E, and then L is the word for God. Daniel, God is my judge. And his life was to set the record straight that only God is God. And he does set the record straight. If you listen, you will surely hear it. It's Daniel's intention that the people of all ages would understand God rules. 
God is king. God is judge. God is the final right answer in every life circumstance, no matter what it looks like. And it will look very bleak. It will look very difficult for him. And what we do is we begin with verses 1 and 2. I call it the prelude. Or actually, it is the prelude, but I call it the prologue. <laughs> the prologue. That's where you read one word and you say another word, and you go like, why did you just do that? It's prologue. Everything that is mentioned in these first two verses, you will see flowing through the rest of the book. But there are two main points to Daniel's intro, and it begins with the first verse, God's sovereignty confronts us. And you see this in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Simple sentences, nothing hard about that, but every one of those words says something. And it confronts us with God. You see, everything about our lives, how we live, what we think in life, the conclusions about life that we come to, how we live our lives, and how we even view the church flows directly out of our view of God in all of life. Every day, you make decisions based on your understanding of God. That's how you live your life. If you think that somehow you're God, then you live your life according to you. If God is God, then you want to arrange your life according to Him. We are all theologians. All of us have some view of God. And we either view God as He declares Himself in the Word, or we are constantly jockeying our view of life and our view of God through life by our own feelings, our own way of thinking. And so then God becomes very subjective. God even becomes somewhat flimsy or malleable in order to fit our lives. This book will confront our view of God. And I'll just warn you up front, it will hit us head on. Daniel doesn't play games. He doesn't play word games. He comes and he hits us right in the gut, as it were. Dead center of our being. We're often very confused and even fearful when we begin to understand this idea that God sovereignly rules. I hear it all the time from people. Oh, I wish you wouldn't say that. I just, oh, I just, I don't understand that. Well, it's right here where Daniel begins in verse 1. And we see God's sovereignty in three different places. First of all, we see God's sovereignty in his rule of history. You see that in verse 1. It begins with a date. It says, in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign. This was a specific time. This isn't, I think, around whatever. No, this is 605 B.C. If you study history and you go to the annals of history, it will tell you about this particular day. And oddly enough, there is an immediate discrepancy that some want to point out because Jeremiah gives the date of this invasion as the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign. Daniel says it's the third year. Jeremiah says it's the fourth year. Yeah, see, the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about, right? Well, understand, it's, it's, uh, it's fine. Uh, it's easily refuted, as Daniel was given the date from a Babylonian perspective rather than the perspective of Judah from which Jeremiah was giving. You see, in Babylon, 
the year in which the king ascended to the throne was called the ascension year. And that meant that the first year was the following year. But with the Judean view, the king's first year began upon ascension. He didn't really have an ascension year. He just had year one. So Daniel writes from the perspective of Babylon. And I think it's on purpose. Because Daniel wants his readers to understand that God is in complete rule even of the enemy's calendar. He doesn't use Judah's calendar. He uses Babylonian calendar just to say, look, God's in charge no matter who monkeys with the calendar. And so it's the third year of Jehoiakim's reign, but fourth year from Jeremiah's standpoint. You understand that? Don't, don't freeze on that. And this is perhaps one of the lowest times ever in the nation of Israel. It's the year 605 B.C. And so to understand the setting for the book of Daniel, we need to turn the clock back some 150 years before Daniel. And we're going to huge, go back chunks of time here. David and Solomon had made Israel a beautiful united monarchy, but the nation had split. Israel had been divided into northern kingdom, which remained, kept the name Israel, and a southern kingdom, which took the designated name Judah. And the split was due to sin. Sin always does this. Sin always splits. But it all started back in King David's day, but really only occurred in Solomon's day. When Jeroboam, Solomon's servant's son, the son of Nebat, 2 Chronicles 10, verse 2 and verse 15, became the king of the northern ten tribes known as Israel. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, in 2 Chronicles 10, 4, became king of the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, known as Judah. Both groups fell into sin. So God raised up prophets, once again, to warn them of pending judgment. Now listen carefully. Nineteen kings ruled over Judah for about 345 years. Out of that, out of that 19, only eight were good. Eleven were evil. So at the time of Daniel, Jehoiakim, which was the 17th king, was in power, and he was evil. And God finally had had enough. So about 117 years before the events of Daniel, God allowed the northern division of, his, of the kingdom, Israel, to be taken captive by Assyrians. That happened in 722 B.C. And Judah knew about this. The two tribes down here knew about this. But they would not repent. They would not see that their sin had brought them this captivity. And then God even uses Isaiah, in Isaiah 39, verses 5 through 7, to predict in 701 B.C., nearly 100 years before it actually happened, that God would allow Judah to be taken captive by the Babylonians. They didn't believe him. Still, she didn't repent. And just a couple of years before the events of Daniel, the prophet Habakkuk, in Habakkuk 1, verses 5 and 6, predicted that God would raise up Chaldean people to punish his own, and still there was no repentance. So in 605 B.C., God did just what he predicted he would do. 
he permitted Judah to be taken captive along with Daniel and his three friends and more. And it's like Daniel in this text is subtly saying, we were warned. We knew it was coming and it happened. And it did. God's in charge of time. And the very annals of history says it over and over and over, if you'll hear it. The message that he's given in that short little verse is profound. We sit in this world and we go, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. God, don't show me this. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to know. No, 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 no. If I don't know, you can't see me. But God is sovereign over his rule of history. Secondly, God is sovereign in his rule of people. Notice who's listed here. Do you, do you notice a repetition of a word that's used there? In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Right away, you see people. You see Jehoiakim. He's the 17th king. He's full of evil. Jehoiakim was so wicked. Listen to what God says about him in Jeremiah 22.10. Weep not for him, nor grieve for him. Don't, don't shed a tear for him. But weep bitterly for those who go away. For they will return no more to see his native land. You know who Jeremiah was talking about? Daniel and his friends. This guy, wicked. Don't weep for him. There's no hope for him. These people, because they will take the brunt of the judgment of God on them, and they'll never see their land again. It'd be like us dealing with the people of 9-11. A tragic event. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Tragic event in our history. And in that same event, there would be people from Iraq coming in, stealing about 40 of our people, some of our finest people, and whisking them back to Iraq and say, we're going to teach you all, everything that we know about life, about our gods, about the way we eat, the way we live, and you're going to become one of us. And you're going to live in our world. That's exactly what took place. And God's in charge of all those people. There's not one person that God's not overseeing through all of this. So God's in rule, not only of his history, and not only of his people, but thirdly, he's in rule of all the circumstances. Now by this time, as you read through this, you begin to sense Things are really coming unraveled here. Notice the third year, reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar king, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. I mean, just stop and think what it means to be besieged. And you see, things come unraveled. To understand the dynamics here, the two most empower, powerful empires in the world are about to clash and they were clashing, and they had already clashed by the time we come to verse 1. Assyria and Egypt allied together to join forces from the south and the west to the north and east was Israel, and Israel's the startup of Israel was this startup empire called Babylon, whose great army, who's under the leadership of a brilliant young commander, Nebuchadnezzar. 
And he and his armies throughout the entire world of that particular known time, they were making conquest after conquest, and they clashed in the battle of Carchemish. And it was bloody. Egypt is defeated. In fact, Egypt was decimated. Syria, with the capital of Nineveh, is vanquished. I didn't say Siri. These, these things, I got to get that turned off, guys. You got to help me here. Stop it. How do we turn this thing off? Delete, delete. I know you're laughing at me because you've, you've done that before. All right, here we go. We're good. We're good. Syria. <laughs> it was the capital of Nineveh, and it's vanquished. And really, neither army is ever heard of again. None of those players are really big, even in our world today. And immediately after this victory, as Nebuchadnezzar proceeds back to Babylon, comes this little area that's kind of caught in the middle called Judah. And so he's going like, ah, I'm right here. Might as well just conquer them. And Scripture says here they besieged it. They, 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 they set up stage all around it. And at this point in time, Judah is pretty much a non-player on the world stage. It literally consists of only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And since the northern kingdom called Israel had been taken into captivity more than 100 years before by the Assyrians, good, you didn't do it, Israel is completely cleaned out. And they have no more to give. And the complete control and decimation of Judah was a process that took place in three stages over a period of about 20 years. And here was a Christless-like none other. The stories of devastation and power of the armies of Babylon kept God's people in utter terror. They knew they were going to be demolished. And Nebuchadnezzar looted the city and took captive the most promising young men of the land, separating them from their families forever. And among those captives were four men who play a major role in this book called Daniel. There was Daniel himself, plus his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is where we are in chapter 1. And Daniel wants his readers to understand something very important. We are daily confronted with God's sovereignty. Daily. Every part of your life this past week was put in place because God is sovereign. He is Lord of time. He is Lord of, of people. He is Lord of circumstance. There wasn't one circumstance that came across your path that God isn't sitting there going, I am Lord. I am King. And Daniel and his, free, and his friends were confronted with this and it became something that they had to hold on tightly to. And so God's sovereignty confronts us. But it doesn't hold us there merely in a confrontation. God's sovereignty also comforts us. And this is verse 2. This is beautiful. And we don't go here much, unfortunately. I don't know why we don't, but we don't. But Daniel does. And I think it's because he's giving subtle hints of his testimony of how God worked. How could there possibly be any kind of comfort in what it is that we're seeing at this point? God's sovereign. He's just this maniacal despot up there ruling away, doing what he wants to do. And Daniel goes like, oh no. No, that's not how it works. And so he shows us comfort 
And he gets comfort in some of the craziest places. I think it's beautiful. I love what he does here. Notice, first of all, he gives comfort in what looks like defeat. This is why I think Psalm 2 talks about God laughing. What we see here is nothing short of amazing. You see the words in verse 2? And the Lord, what? Gave. The Lord gave. God gave. Let's stop and think what that means. What does it mean for someone to give something? You can only give out of what you own. God is in complete control. He owns the nations. He owns the kings. He owns both wicked and fearful kings. He is the Lord. The word Lord here is the word Adonai. Adonai means mighty God, master, owner, provider. It is a declaration of what God owns in our daily lives. What does God own in our daily lives? Survey says everything. So God here purposefully gives Israel into the hands of the enemy. And if you take a step back and go like, what? Why? Because it's devastating. And God looks so weak. And the people of God look so helpless and so hopeless. But notice what Daniel puts the emphasis on. What God is doing. God is giving. And it means Daniel can trust in his soul of souls regardless of what it looks like. And if you're on the beginning stage, here you are. Daniel is a, probably a 14 or 15-year-old. I'm going to go with 15. You say, why? I don't know. I just like 15 better. We don't know. 14, 15, 16, young man, teenager. And it's for you guys. And he's going over there, and he isn't sitting there going like, oh, wow, this is so cool. This is, oh, this is this defeat, man. We are, we're, we're whooped. We're, we're whooped bad. And yet in his soul, because he's writing this afterwards, he's writing and goes like, no, no, no. God did this. God did this. It looks very bad. And it has all the appearances of defeat. And that brings us to our second point. God brings comfort in what looks like utter humiliation. Notice certain vessels from the temple were taken. Oh my goodness. This, this was... This was blasphemous, what, what, what was going on here. This was a ploy that the victor would impose upon the vanquished ones. They would take the spoils and would choose particular ones that they knew would bring the most pain. And so this was, this, these things were taken right out of the temple of God, and the temple was a monument, a memorial to God's relationship with the people. God dwelt with Israel and Judah with them in the temple. God loved them dearly. And Israel was known by, to the nations around for their devotion of the one true God. They had a relationship with the one true God. And these vessels symbolized God's great love and dedication to them. And so Nebuchadnezzar knows exactly what he's doing. He goes and grabs them and marches like in a parade. Look what we have. How big is your God, really? 
And all of these things would give an outward sign that the relation with God and his people was forever destroyed. Eventually, we know that the temple was fully destroyed. You see, for Daniel, it's not just about God's ruling, but about his love and his relationship with God. And this would have been deeply heartbreaking for them to realize that even right now in the middle of this, God was willing to look bad and to look weak in order for him to accomplish his purposes. Do you realize that God is fully God that way? We don't like that. Everyone could read what had happened. They made sure that it was paraded. Israel would conclude now that the temple was destroyed, that God was disappointed with them, and that their relationship with God was finished. Just for fun, go to the end of 2 Chronicles. Not, not now, just listen. Okay, we don't have time right now. And read what's almost one of the last sentences. And God told him to go rebuild the temple. God has plans. And God's doing what he's doing. And what was true is everything was moving forward just as God planned. Even though it looked very humiliating. Even though it looked total defeat. Daniel's message was simple. This is from the Lord. Because of what you have not abandoned God, you've not abandoned us. And when God seems incredibly distant, you can humble yourself and He will bring you near. Now, it may take some time. It may, and it did. And then thirdly, there's comfort even when evil seems to triumph. Notice the mention of the land of Shinar. Did you see that in this? The land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Where was Shinar? Anybody know where Shinar is? Shinar was the place of the Tower of Babel. This is also where Babel will, be, will reemerge in Revelation 17 and 18, by the way. It's going to come up again. But oddly enough, it's where Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees came from. And now they were in their own land, and now. They're being marched back to where they came from. Evil, triumphing. What about God's promises? Everything is backwards. What about God's kindness? What about God's love, steadfast love? What about, what about Israel, the number of people that will be like the sands of the sea? There's, there's just narrowed down to us. This is a step back. I mean, isn't this often how it seems? We think things are supposed to be better. Now look at us. Evil seems to be triumphing. It's a step back, is it? No, my friend. It's a step forward. Just not according to your definition. But according to God's way. God was moving through all of this. You see, the things of God are now in the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. It was like this parading superiority over Yahweh. See, evil does win. But stop for a moment. Stop for a moment. Who is the one who is doing this? 
Daniel wants his readers to know that God is behind it all. And when sinners blaspheme God, and God isn't moved by that, and when it seems like God is silent and the world is full of foolish, ignorant people and the insults are coming all over the place to all of God's holiness, God is still sovereign. You see, understanding God's complete sovereignty over all things, it simply means man has to change their definition of what really is going on. Daniel tells us through this text that God is speaking through all of this. And it appears as though Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah. Nebuchadnezzar kidnaps a small contingency of, and who does he take? He takes Daniel. But what is really happening is that God is sending Daniel into Babylon so that Daniel's life both verbally and visually speak of God and confronts the foolishness of proud humanity. That's what's happening. God in heaven reigns, and God uses sin in a sinless fashion, and as sin flexes its muscles, but evil and evil humanity is always going to do God's bidding. And God will use Daniel to address King Nebuchadnezzar and to show him how God really is God, and God will bring to Nebuchadnezzar terrifying dreams and God sends him to the fields like a wild animal and he unveils not only his king and his nation but all the nations of all the kings that God is God and at first glance though it appears that Babylon is invading Judah but what is really happening is Judah is invading Babylon our God is king he will drive all history through his divine plan. He will drive your life through his divine plan. And my friend, there are always two ways to interpret history. You ready for this? One way is to read history with the naked eye and come to your own conclusion. The other way is to read it in the eyes of faith. God, what are you doing? William Cooper who experienced severe bouts of depression and darkness in his own life, wrote a hymn that says this. Listen to this. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, but he is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. I think as we begin, there's a couple of things that we need to understand about what we see. Three things quickly. One, God is the God of his word. 
Clear back in Daniel 28, when we see the first glimpses of this blessing and curse motif, listen to what it says, verse 1. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. He doesn't say when, doesn't say how, but it will happen. Verse 25, that same chapter. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms on the earth. Survey says the book of Daniel. In verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. That's what will happen if you don't believe God and his word. Notice secondly, God is the God who is long-suffering and full of mercy. You must believe this. Psalm 25:10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his tender and his testimonies. God's yes is always louder than his no. However harsh his providence in your life, it's not because he doesn't love you or he doesn't see you, or that he's written you off. God has not utterly abandoned his people, and never has, and never will. And even during judgment, God is showing them mercy after mercy after mercy. You see, we think Daniel and the three other boys, they didn't deserve to go there. I mean, they were just good Hebrew children, right? No, my friend, they were sinners. They deserved eternal death. Like you and I do. And so they, God spared them and took them to Babylon. There's two ways to look at it. Look at it through the naked eye or look at it and go like, wow, look what God is doing. I get to minister now to the Babylonians. And through that hardship, place them right in the middle so that their voice would speak the loudest. Have you ever noticed once in this life that you have never been punished as much as you deserve? Do you believe that? You know why? Because you've been shown mercy. Thirdly, understand this. God never loses. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it seems like, no matter what it looks like. Look down at verse 21 of chapter 1. Just this little, little verse, all right? Just a little verse. You read through it, you just kind of flip right over it. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Stop with that, what that means. We're told Daniel was there to the first year of King Cyrus. You just went from Daniel chapter 1 all the way to verse 21 and you just barreled through 70 years because God said they would be through 70 years. And who is still standing at the end of 70 years? Daniel was. Where are you, Mr. Nebuchadnezzar? Where are you, satraps, chief eunuchs of the court? Where are you? There's Daniel. And I, I, I suppose that Daniel has this silly little grin in his face. Going like, 
God wins. God loves his people. Do you see that? Do you see the love that's written over the story of Daniel? Empires rise and empires fall. Imperial policies come and they go. Laws come and go and are retracted and amended. And for 70 years, for 70 years, don't miss this, for 70 years, God is punishing his people for their sin. And when you get through it all and you look back, even in the judgment of God, God, the ever-present I am, was with you the entire time, holding you close to his heart. My friend, you can believe and you can find great comfort in a God like that. This is our God. Will you pray with me this morning? Oh, Father, help us to see the magnificence of God through our pain, through the darkness, through the, the, the turmoil of the curse, through the hard labor, the sweat the pain, the trouble. Lord, through all of that, help us to constantly be aware that you hold us fast. We're not strong. We can't grab onto you. And you, because of your perfect work through Jesus Christ, has allowed us to be able to say it is well with our souls. And we say it sometimes through tears, sometimes through choking back the sorrows of our own hearts. And yet we cannot stand and see the cross and Christ on the cross and then Christ resurrecting from that death and sitting at the right hand of the Father. We cannot look at that and say, oh man, I'm so glad God is so good to to have me. We must die to ourselves and realize you have loved us all the way. You have shown us mercy all the way. Father, may we see the God that is, and may we give our hearts and lives to him alone. Open our eyes. Help us to see what we cannot see at times. And may the word of Christ dwell richly in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.